I love that there are two sheets of bubble wrap. Uh, these are, these are, this is like quality bubble uh, packaging uh, on top of this. Book. You know you've uh, made it when you're recording an unboxing class. video so, of your own book. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. That is exactly what my guest on the show today did a oh few gosh. times. Mm, yay. Okay. First of all, I walked down to my package room. I had the flu. I walked down in basically like my bathrobe and I thought I like I was looking for, I don't know, light bulbs or something. And there's five boxes from Random House. And I was like, oh, no, this is it. This is happening. <laughs> As you have the flu. Oh, my gosh. Look at this. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I feel a little bit like I'm like pulling a switcheroo because it was not the first box that I opened that's on the video. But the reactions are genuine. I know. I know. I shouldn't even say this. Cancel me. Cancel me. Oh, my gosh. Here for it, or how to save your soul in America. Eric Thomas, those are my names. The Thank world needs to hear it. I, I, well, you know, I enjoy narrating opening my mail. I'm gonna do it every day. <laughs> I'm just gonna be like, look at this cable bill, y'all. Yeah. Mm. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. My guest today is R. Eric Thomas. You have heard him on this show before. Eric writes a pop culture slash news slash celebrity slash shade column for L.com. He is a writer who coined the term Auntie Maxine for U.S. House member Maxine Waters. Some of his recent posts have titles like literally 10 photos of Nancy Pelosi ripping paper. I am pleased to announce that I, too, won Iowa. And the Grammys really needed Alicia Keys' weighted blanket energy. Man, that's a good one. Our Eric Thomas is now out with a book. It's called Here For It or How to Save Your Soul in America. It's a memoir made up of some very personal and poignant essays. In this chat, we're going to do some unboxing and unpacking ourselves. We'll talk more about Eric's column, how he tries to give voice to black men and women, and why he thinks his birth was immaculate. Seriously. All right, let's get to it. Here is my chat with our Eric Thomas. I was playing this game in my head today. Like, what is the R for? R. Eric Thomas. Rihanna. Eric Thomas. Resplendent. Eric Thomas. Ratchet. Eric Thomas. If well, first of all, all three of those work really well. If my first name was Rihanna, you know I wouldn't be going around. No disrespect to the other Erics in the world. True. I wouldn't be going around with Eric. You'd be Rihanna. Rihanna, be Rihanna. Thomas. Rihanna Tom. Rihanna E. Thomas. But you know, Rihanna doesn't even wait. Is Rihanna's first name Robin? I think it is. Yeah. Yes. So she is also, she's our Rihanna Fenty. So our, we are. Y'all you know, are twins. Exactly. Um, I want to talk more about this book, but I want to talk about kind of what put you on the path to be in a place now where you're releasing a book. And I'm mm -hmm. talking about the phenomenon that is your L.com column. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's a phenomenon. It is. A, wait. What's the Wendy quote? It is the mood. It is the moment. What does she say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's the I'll moment. It. it is the moment. It's the I moment. Try. Yes. It's something which is so odd. You know, like I write in the book that the uh, column started with a viral Facebook post. Um, yeah, which is crazy. I didn't know that. Tell the story for folks because when I was reading it, I was like, what? Really? I, I mean, like, it's like, you know, and I say facetiously that it's a Cinderella story, but it, like it really is. It, it is. doesn't make any sense. I was, you know, there's this photo from a couple of years ago of Justin Trudeau and um, President Barack Obama and Enrique Peña Nieto, um, the former president of Mexico. Yeah. Three handsome men by politician standards. Exactly. And this is, you know, this is back, you know, we're thinking, we're talking 2016. Mm -hmm. So we were 
all so much younger then and all so much more innocent. And it was sort of We still liked age. Trudeau. We liked Trudeau. Nieto was still you know. in office. You know, he didn't have the blackface the music yet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and so I put the photo up on Facebook and I, I wrote this long rant about how hot they looked. I kind of want you to read a bit of the rant because people have to hear that. Okay. Yeah. All right. I've got it right here. Whoever took this photo deserves a GD Pulitzer Prize. We may be two minutes from doomsday, but thank the Lord we still live in a universe where three world leaders can strut into the room like they're the new interracial male cast of Sex and the City. <laughs> like, I have already pre-purchased tickets to this film out here in these streets looking like Career Day Ken, looking like Destiny's Dilf. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Looking like the alternate universe version of our current political universe. Looking like Tom Four presents the Avengers. <laughs> and it went on like that for a long time. Oh, um, it was so good. But this thing goes viral on Facebook. <laughs> it went viral. It was like 70,000 likes, 16,000 yeah. shares, like all these comments. Yeah. Like people are coming at people me from all it. these different directions and they loved it. And one of the people that came at you was like an editor at Elle? Yes. Leah Chernikoff uh, was formerly the site director of Elle.com and so she sent me a Facebook message and was oh like, God. do you want to do this every day? And I was like, wow. mm, lie in my bed and talk about how hot Barack Obama is? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but like write political commentary. And I was like, oh, um, Sure. <laughs> and um, but no, but it was really interesting just to be able to have this platform to speak to people about our political moment in a way that was like joyful and um, exuberant. Yeah. And, well, and, uh, and like making moments in parts of our current history that are not at all happy. You found ways to make them happy. I think the column for L that really put you on the map was when you wrote about Auntie Maxine. This yeah, is Maxine yeah. Waters, Democratic House member, who was leading the charge to impeach Donald Trump way before Pelosi even thought about it. But you took this dark moment, you know, a member of one party saying that the other party's leader needs to go, and you made comedy gold and made this House member an auntie. Like, talk about that column. I mean, that was quite a surprise to me, um, mostly because I, you know, I had been doing the column for a couple of months at, the, at that point, maybe six months. And uh, so if you may recall that um, the there's this one press conference that um, a representative Waters uh, held where she and some members of the House had interviewed James Comey uh, when he was FBI director. And uh, they had a lot of questions and he didn't have any answers. I guess he was saving it for the book. And um, and so she comes out and she greets this group of reporters and her first words are like, yes, yes. Can I help you? What do you want? And I was Can like, I help oh, you? What do you want? I'm obsessed with this person. And, you know, and then she, you know, she, somebody says, how did it go? And she's like, went fine. You know, her face says, not well. Mm -hmm. But she's like, you know, the FBI director has like no credibility. The FBI director has no credibility. And then she like throws like both of her hands, like she's throwing the whole press conference in the trash can. Mm -hmm. And I just screamed. I screamed in my house because I was like, this is somebody who's telling the full truth and who's so over this moment in a way that I feel deeply. And I like I had to write about her. It felt she felt so much larger than life, but she also felt like so deeply connected to the way that I as an American yeah. felt. Well, and um, like you did this really hard thing to do. You humanize stuff happening inside the beltway. 
And you made this political pomp and circumstance feel like it was coming literally from your auntie. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I, I, you know, I I don't know that I set out with the project of, like, right-sizing different political um, larger-than-life figures. But, like, you know, I'm just, I don't. I don't have a political science degree. I watch the news like anybody else. Um, but I see myself as uh, as much a part of the American experiment as anybody else. And so I, I was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, this is just a person. And she has given me license to interpret her personhood in this really familiar way. You know, like we all have we all have people in our families who've got. Uh, who always have the good gossip and mm-hmm. who've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I know exactly who uh, this person is um, yeah. in 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 this like larger framework. And so it was really exciting to me. I like, with the Maxine Waters column and some other ones you've done, you give voice and imagination to the personas of famous black women. Mm. And I think a lot of times... With black women in the public eye, they are heroes, they are villains, they are caricatures, but they're usually one note. Mm-hmm. And you write about these women in a way that lets you imagine their personalities. And I like that because black women in the public eye, black men too, don't get that enough. We don't get to imagine multiple realities for them, right? You know, I think, well, one, I'm... We are all surrounded by caricatures of ourselves and of the people that we love. Mm. And as somebody who has been fortunate enough to be surrounded by and raised by three-dimensional people of color, particularly three-dimensional black women, mm-hmm. uh, my whole life, I like that is always frustrating to me. Mm. Um, like, and that's, I mean, that's the project. You know, like mm. my big project is black norm core, queer norm core. <laughs> you know, like I am not writing profiles and greatness. I'm interested in us being able to sort of walk into a room and be specific and authentic and have it not be a referendum mm. on the larger uh, system of socioeconomic justice, have mm. it be who we are. Because so often we are asked to identify with someone who is not like us, uh, you know, usually a straight white man who has to, I don't know, go to space to save the world. And oh, yeah. Or just even like the idea of like the the films that from our youth that we consider canon. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. our story. Like I, right. I related so much to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm-hmm. I had nothing in common with that man. <laughs> right. Yes. And yet and still it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. I, yes. f- I feel the same way, you know, and uh like I love I, you know, and I'm like some sometimes I'm like, "Oh, am I Cameron or am I a Ferris?" I'm like, "Eric, <laughs> you're the black kid who walked by them in the hallway." Like <laughs> with no lines. Right. And it's like I can be a Ferris, you know, I yeah. can write, you know, a YA novel about a kid who is like me in some way or and not like me in some other way. Uh, who decides to skip school, but like I have to have the opportunity to actually put that out there and say that like, this is valid too. This is not alternative to the canon. This mm-hmm. is not an other. This is center of the page. Yeah. This is the standard. After the break, we dive into the book and why our Eric Thomas is the queen of wordplay and literally divine to us from God. BRB. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. 
Rothy's are stylish, sustainable shoes made for life on the go. Carefully crafted from repurposed plastic water bottles, Rothy's are fully machine washable. Best of all, they're comfortable and have zero break-in period thanks to their seamlessly knit design. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Rothy's are available in a wide array of colors and patterns. Find your perfect pair at rothys.com slash minute. Planet Money is the man who popularized recycling by making a deal with the mafia. It's the bedroom beats maker making hits for Drake and Nicki Minaj and the woman trying to get her money back from Venmo. Planet Money from NPR. Um, The essays have some really, really hilarious titles. Um, For instance... Molly, urine, danger girl, but urine spelled like U-R-I-N-E. Unsuccessful black hair. Um, Eggquity, E-G-G. The past smelled terrible. Unsubscribe from all that. I love it. I love it. I love wordplay. I'm a wordplay queen. I love wordplay. Yes. Um, And titles, you know, titles... It really allowed me to have a little bit of fun. There's way too many puns in here um, <laughs> in the titles. Equity, I can't believe they let me get it. I mean, like, <laughs> half the things in this book I should be arrested for. Um, but uh, but when the, you know, Molly, you're in danger, girl, is an essay, <laughs> an essay about my, the conflict, internal conflict I feel between growing up in a quote-unquote urban environment that is supposed to be very dangerous and the the real dangerous area, which I think of as the suburbs, which mm-hmm. is where every Dateline story takes Come place, on. you know? Come on. I'm like, you don't... And it's you know, always people, a dude you know! It always is. It's always some dentist who, <laughs> like, is mild-mannered and had, uh-huh. like, a two-car garage and all of a sudden he snapped and I'm like, well, that didn't happen yeah. in my neighborhood, honey. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I would yep. hear gunshots, but the dentist <laughs> was a nice man who went to church. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's about that, but it's also about this experience that I had with uh, babysitting and a mysterious pool of urine that kept showing up. Um, kept showing up. <laughs> it, which um, is, is, you know, a strange circumstance. And so I was like, okay, well, if you have this idea of, like, a ghost who's peeing on the floor in a suburban house, you have to reference Oda Mae Brown of the movie Ghost um, and her famous line, Molly, Molly you're in danger, danger, girl. girl. I would be remiss to not name the essay that. I love that you did that. I love that. <laughs> um, I want to talk about a really, really, well, two interesting ideas that you lay out in the book that I love and that I think say a lot about you and who you are and your personality. To start, you say, like, literally from the start, that you thought for the longest time, probably still now maybe, that your birth was, is immaculate. Mm-hmm. Do tell. I love um, that. One, I, from like a, a form point of view, like I really wanted to begin my book by declaring this is not going to be a parade through different traumas. This is mm. going to be me saying, oh, no, I actually thought that my birth was the result of an immaculate conception. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like it was just a practical point for me. Like I understood, you know, we were, we went to Sunday school. I was, we were raised Baptist. And so I understood about what the Immaculate Conception was. And my mother would tell me when uh, she would talk about my birth, she would say, you know, my arms used to ache for the weight of a baby. I would pray and pray and we prayed and we prayed and then God brought you us. And so I was like, well, that that. sounds like an Immaculate Conception to me. (laughs) 
And, you know, I have not, at, my parents have read the book. They have not objected to this interpretation. So, so must be true. Must be true. Come on. You know? I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, but you also said that believing that your birth was immaculate, divinely ordained by God or some higher power, also led you to um, think about a supposed perfection of your future. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it took a while for the idea to take hold that I was not supposed to have everything that the world or God or my parents or destiny seemed to promise. Mm. It seemed to me, you know, there's, you know, this idea that we're blessed. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and if or, I'm or, blessed and if I am literally immaculately conceived, shouldn't I have everything I want and shouldn't it all make sense right now? Right. And and I wasn't spoiled in any way, you know. But I, I just didn't – it was confusing to me the fact that became quite apparent that life was a series of obstacles. Uh, and, I, you know, and, and this is it, it, most of the time that I'm talking about in that portion is – um, adolescence. And so, you know, at a certain point, I think maybe all of us get to a point where we realize, oh, being a human is actually about making all these compromises about what we thought we could get and what we thought we could have mm-hmm. um, and to what our dreams would be. Yeah. And so, like, in your youth, you were wanting some of that resolution over parts of your identity that weren't going to be so easy to unpack, at least not in your youth. And you talk about this throughout the book, like unpacking what it means to be black and gay at the same time or to work in our industry and be a Christian or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I love that, like, ultimately the, the, the big moral of the, of the book and of your story, I think, is that, like, the twofold, maybe. Like, one, you may never have all the answers or feel completely settled in them. And two, if there is an answer... It kind of probably already lies in you. <laughs> I hate to yeah. be so like, you know, <laughs> after school special, but those were the vibes I was getting from the book, and I appreciated that. I, I think that's true. I think one of the things that I continue to marvel at and be really thankful for is that there was some delusion inside of me that thought, oh, well, it must get better. Mm-hmm. Um, there must be a space where being black and being queer and being a Christian and being an American and being raised lower class can still result in a happy life. And I don't think that's an extraordinary thought, but I definitely don't think it's a thought that is a, that's not being taught in every school. No, Um, no. But like something in me, and I think a lot of it is my parents, um, but I think an equal part of it is every time I walked into a library, I was able to see other worlds, other universes that I could plug into, and I was able to expand my understanding of uh, my capacity to empathize with these people, some of whom were very much like me, some of whom weren't like me at all, Mm -hmm. and see that life can become bigger, can attain a sense of peace and resolution. Because, you know, if not, what are we here for? And I mean, you're you're downplaying this. You were you didn't just like like the library. You loved the library to the extent that like one summer, didn't you like work in the library the whole summer? Oh, my gosh. Yes. I love libraries. I go to the library every week. Um, The library is, you, you know, it's a source of so many endless possibilities. And all I wanted in my life was possibility. And so to be able to walk into those doors 
and see shelves and shelves and shelves of stories, fictional, non-fictional, um, things that scared me. You know, I remember I, I would look up in the card catalog. I would just type in the word gay um, before I came out to myself. Bold. Really. I know. I'm just like, <laughs> I just, and like, I'd look around like I was, you know, Mission Impossible or like Sandra Bullock in the net. And I'd just be like, gee. I have not heard anyone freely associate <laughs> Sandra Bullock, the net, that easily and that flawless in the conversation ever in my life. And I want to give you a Pulitzer in the Peabody right now, sir. Well, thank you. I accept. Yes. I think it's very important that we recognize the like the preeminent um, scholarship on what is the Internet. And yes. that is Sandra Bullock. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I would just type in G-A-Y and mm-hmm. I would look up the, the Dewey Decimal number that came up and I would, like, look down the aisle where <laughs> where it was. And I, I don't know what I expected, like a little, you know, little gay club in the, oh my <laughs> the aisle, goodness. like a drag queen, like mm-hmm. in the stacks, just like, hello, welcome. You found me. <laughs> right. Stacks on stacks on stacks. <laughs> um, and, but, like, every sense of possibility that I have came from someone else's words. Mm. Things like, you know, The Color Purple and uh, and David Rakoff's book, Fraud, and, you know, CDs and movies. Like, these things changed my life just by opening up my eyes to what was possible. Yeah. Okay, time for a break. When we come back, our Eric Thomas on why love is love is love and genderless. It is straight out of a YA novel, y'all. So heartwarming. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chobani Oat, made to taste just like milk. It's creamy, frothy, and great with coffee and cookies, but without the dairy, because it's not milk. It's almost milk. New Chobani Oat. Listeners in Los Angeles, in Long Beach, in Malibu, in Calabasas. Listen closely right here, okay? We're going to try something new next month. We are trying something new next month. On Friday morning, March 27th, year of our Beyonce 2020, we're going to record our weekly wrap like we always do, but live in front of an audience of you at our studios at NPR West in Culver City. Yes, we're taping the weekly wrap the morning of March 27th live. We want you to be there. You can come watch the show happen at NPR Studios. Hang out with me. I'm going to have special guests. It's going to be exciting. We're going to have coffee and breakfast. I'll be toasting bagels and flipping waffles for y'all. I want you to come through. If you like the show every Friday, you can see it happen live in L.A. NPRpresents.org has tickets and info and all the stuff. NPR presents. Org. Okay, thanks. If you want to get smart on the economy in just 10 minutes a day, try the indicator. We use data to debunk common myths about millennials, and we look to Coachella for lessons about the global economy. That is NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Listen now. Another thing that you unpack beautifully um, in the book is what it means to be black and mm. how you manifest that and how you live it and how it's interpreted. And there's this chapter in which you talk about picking what college to go to and all these elite Ivy League schools inviting you for basically their black weekend. 
<laughs> and it was so funny. And it was really this great insight into how you've kind of conceptualized your blackness. I want you to tell as much as you can of that chapter without giving it away. But I want you to specifically talk about the dude who at one of the visit weekends um, told you as soon as you walked in his dorm. He was a student. He told you as mm-hmm. soon as you walked in. Don't talk to the whites. There's a race war going on. <laughs> so this is, oh, my gosh. It, it's, so it's 1998, right? And I, you know, and it, we are experiencing all the things that we're experiencing in terms of, like, racial politics in America in yeah. 1998. Britney Spears um, just showed up. Britney Spears just showed up. Uh, people were casually calling Bill Clinton the first, the first black president. first black president, yeah. So, obviously, we were all, uh, the situation was fraught. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I applied to all these schools. Um, you get these big, the big envelopes back. It's like, welcome, you know, you're, you're in. But then you get a smaller envelope a day or two later that invites you to the minority weekend. Um, and uh, some of the weekends were called uh, things like uh, Third World Weekend. Um, Which school did that? <laughs> oh, God. They don't do it anymore, so okay, I will say. Okay. Uh, and, and, and these weekends had wild names, you know, like More Color Weekend and, you know, like... <laughs> Millie like, Vanilli, Mill You. Exactly. <laughs> Ra- like Rachel Dolezal Fest. Like, it, it, it was... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like... And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this weekend? Because I, like... I think a lot of a lot of black people of all different presentations have had experiences where someone has called into question your blackness. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not black enough. You're an Oreo. Mm-hmm. And that's not blackness talking. That's white supremacy talking through blackness. But I didn't know that then. Um, so I thought, I'm not black enough. And I didn't know what that meant. And so then I was like, well, I got to go to the third. W- I'm from Baltimore, but that's not the third <laughs> world, honey. Like, And so I would go to these weekends and I'm just like, what am I supposed to do to represent myself blackly here. And so I went to Cornell and I got there and they paired me with this guy um, who in the book I call Fredo. Um, And the first thing he said to me, um, he had like a single and there's no room in his room. And he was like, so you got to sleep under the bed. There's no room in here. And also don't talk to any white people on campus. There's a race war going on. And I was like- What are you doing that moment? What do you say? (laughs) I just really- I nodded really obediently. Um, <laughs> I was like, understood. Thank you so Thank much, you, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, and then I after didn't... that, he told you where you had to sleep? Yeah, under the bed. Um, and so I slept <laughs> under his bed. And I was like, I wish I could go back and ask that young man, you know, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. What's happened to you here? Come on. What is going on that you feel the need to give me this warning? Um, and how do we work on making you more empowered in this space? Um, I want to talk about the Electra chapter. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You knew from an early age that you were on the path to homosexuality. <laughs> that glitter-covered uh, path. Yes. But you also talk about how your sophomore year of high school, you literally fell in love with this woman, young woman, Electra. Mm-hmm. Tell me about her and what that love was. Electra was new at our school when I was in ninth grade, and she was in 10th grade, I believe. Um and uh, she was a young black woman, um, and she was quiet and awkward in a way that I found really interesting and beguiling. She mm. didn't join the Black Student Union, Black Awareness Club, and I found that really weird. I and still can't get over the fact that I call it the Black Awareness Club. I love I mean, it. The '90s were strange indeed. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And so we became friendly. You know, we shared a sort of nerdy sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And then we worked together all summer at the library. And so we were supposed to work separately at the library to maximize our time. But we decided that we can't yell at each other across the library. So we might as well just do it together. So we'd be on either side of the cart, scanning the same books and talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. (laughs) And she was obsessed with Madonna. And so every day at lunch, we would go to the mall, go to Sam Goody, Uh and we would look at the CDs. And there was a new Madonna album that was going to come out. And she would stare at the poster and she'd say that Sandra Bernhardt had gotten uh, Madonna into Kabbalah. Yeah. uh, This was was a Ray of Light album. This is Ray of Light. Yes. Um, And she's like, this is going to change everything for us. Yeah. And I loved Madonna because Electra loved Madonna. And by the end of the summer... I had just fallen completely head over heels in love with her. And you were um, and, and you said that you were in love with her. I was, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I wonder, I'm not able to ask her, you know, what she was experiencing. And I don't want to put on some, I, I think the worst thing that I, particularly as a, a cisgender man, can do is to dress up this uh, friendship in um, a way that she didn't consent to. What I know is that I had a deep, I have, and had something that felt deeper than friendship. And it opened up my heart in a way that was new to me, you know? Mm. When you are a teenager, you are discovering all different parts of yourself, these different little rooms inside of your heart. And the Mm. room that she opened was brighter and airier than anything that I knew before. Um, I knew that I was gay, but I also knew that I had the capacity to love. And I think those two are not mutually exclusive, but I think I learned them in separate spaces. And I learned that I had the capacity to love yeah. from falling in love with, with Electra. And I love that you, I love that you point out that like your love for her, it was bigger than gender and bigger than sexuality. And really, if you think about it, all love is bigger than those things. Absolutely. All, all real true love is bigger than those things. And it was just beautiful to see that story of love told through your eyes because so often when we see stories, particularly of like young gay love in high school, it is fraught and tortured and often so sad and so tragic. And like so much of your love story with Electra was just, I loved her and she loved me too. Yeah. You know, there are times I read modern day YA novels, you know, like... uh Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda or um, Oh, The Gravity of Us by Phil Stamper. And I'm like, oh, why can't I have the beautiful love, the high school love? And I'm like, oh, you did get to have it, you know, mm-hmm. and with another person. And ultimately, I'm falling in love with people. You know, I, I'm married to a man now, and I didn't fall in love with him because he's a man. I fell in love with him because he is an inherently good-hearted cheerful person who knows all the trivia answers and is obsessed with plants you know um, <laughs> that those things don't have gender thanks again to our eric thomas his book is called here for it or how to save your soul in america also check out eric's column it's called eric reads the news at l.com Okay, listeners, also don't forget, you know how we do every Friday. We talk about the news and the culture of the week. We end that episode with you, your voices, telling me about the best thing that happened to you all week. Keep those coming. Record yourself talking about whatever, best part of your week, and just send that file to me, samsanders at npr.org. I am very interested in best parts of your week that are kind of wacky and crazy and funny. So we like those too, okay? 
All right, you might hear yourself in the show. Till Friday, thank you so much for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. <laughs>